Please turn to Matthew's Gospel, chapter 23, as we continue to consider this Gospel together, studying it. As I look at this chapter today, we'll skip ahead next week on Palm Sunday and move into some of the uh, things in chapter 26 towards the cross and beyond, and then come back. Because we're in the midst of a large discourse of Jesus here, verse chapters 23 through 25 that have many things that we want to look at carefully. I really had quite a debate about how to address chapter 23. It's not an easy chapter by any standard. Having spent two weeks on a single verse in chapter 22 on rendering to Caesar what is Caesar's, you might think my sense of balance is completely off when I tell you I'm going to try to deal with chapter 23 in just one message. That almost seems absurd, but I'm going to try to do it. And I'm going to read the first 12 verses of the chapter and then pick it up near the end at chapter or at verse 37 to the end. And then I hope that you'll keep your Bible open this morning because there'll be parts referred to that I'm not reading for you now. Listen to God's Word. Then Jesus said to the crowds and to his disciples, The teachers of the law and the Pharisees sit in Moses' seat, so you must obey them and do everything they tell you. But do not do what they do, for they do not practice what they preach. They tie up heavy loads and put them on men's shoulders but they themselves are not willing to lift a finger to move them. Everything they do is done for men to see. They make their phylacteries wide and the tassels on their garments long. They love the place of honor at banquets and the most important seats in the synagogues. They love to be greeted in the marketplaces and to have men call them rabbi. You are not to be called rabbi. For you have only one master, and you are all brothers. Do not call anyone on earth father, for you have one father, and he is in heaven. Nor are you to be called teacher, for you have one teacher, the Christ. The greatest among you will be your servant. For whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. Then begins this series of Jesus speaking woes, and we're going to glance over those a bit, but I want to come to this end section and read 37 to the end. The final public word Jesus had to these opponents of his was this, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who kill the prophets and stone those sent to you. How often I have longed to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings. But you are not willing. Look, your house is left to you desolate. For I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. This is God's own holy word. Father, help us to understand the hard parts of your word as well as the 
comforting parts and the more obvious parts. May this speak to us today as you have designed for it to do. For your honor and praise. Amen. In the secular notion and ideal of world religions, God is often pictured dwelling figuratively atop some high mountain with dozens of different paths winding up the slopes of the mountain. And supposedly, many religious trails will ultimately reach God despite the fact that they follow completely different routes to the top. A long-ago scholar named Edward Gibbon wrote a famous set of books called The Decline and Fall of the Roman Empire. And Gibbon said in that analysis of Rome and its fall, he spoke about the religions of men that were around at that time when Rome was declining. And he said they, those religions that is, were considered by the people to be equally true. They were considered by the philosophers to be equally false and by the politicians as being equally useful. Well, we're in a similar age. Our present time in which the one doctrine that no one is supposedly allowed to violate is the standard of unlimited tolerance to say Tolerance, of course, not simply to allow people to have different views, but to go so far as to say that all views are equal in what they teach and in truth. There are people who declare that as long as you use the Bible and as long as you're sincere about your use of the Bible, you surely cannot go wrong in the matter of truth. Well, there's a significant problem with that total tolerance view that says all religious options say the same thing or are equally true. Jesus Christ did not get the memo. Nobody informed him about it. And in fact, Jesus, the central figure of Christianity, never for one moment suggested or agreed with the idea that all paths of faith will do. It doesn't matter as long as you get to God by some way. In fact, he declared he was the exclusive way to God. No doubt about it. And now in Matthew 23, we come to hear a Jesus speak that some people have no desire to hear from. There are commentators, when you get to this 23rd chapter of Matthew, who become very apologetic. They almost want to tell you, well, Jesus couldn't really have meant all this. He couldn't have been as hard as he sounds in this chapter. This doesn't seem consistent, and they want to apologize for the Lord, for his intolerance towards leaders of his own nation who had missed their way entirely despite the fact that they had Bibles, the Old Testament Bible, in their hands and open before them all their lives as their religious textbook. 
This long discourse, we begin here with chapter 23, and we will spend more detailed time in 24 and 25 as weeks go on, Lord willing. This is the last long teaching discourse of Jesus. We often call chapter 23 the chapter of the seven woes. By the way, it's kind of interesting, the the Greek word for woe if you pronounced it in its, in its phonetic way from the Greek, you would say something like, oh, wow. And it's a word that sounds like what it's saying. Oh, wow. It's like a whale. It comes out like a sentence of doom when you speak it. Now, the, the longest block of teaching material that we had from Jesus before this, there are others, but the longest previous one was Matthew 5 through 7, the Sermon on the Mount, which we dealt with many months ago. One interesting bit of correspondence between these two long passages, one at the beginning of the ministry, this one near the very end of the ministry, is the fact that the Sermon on the Mount had a list of blessings for those who were the humble, hungry disciples who sought the righteousness of God. Blessed are the meek, and so on. Well, this one has a list of woes for those who will not repent and humble themselves before the grace of God. And it denounces those who stubbornly resist all repentance in their lives. As I've said, my rather ambitious goal here today is to try to give you the big picture of this chapter in a sweeping overview. These words in this chapter are certainly, without any doubt, the most confrontational words Jesus ever spoke to his enemies. They were insulting words to those who heard them. There was no holding back in this chapter. Everything that he thought about the scribes and Pharisees who had opposed the message that Christ brought and opposed him personally spills out. Jesus knew that he was going to die within about 48 hours or a little more of the time that he spoke this. And it seems that he saw the need to give his followers absolute hard-edged realism about the spiritual wolves who were going to call for his death. Now, we have religious advertising pages in our local newspapers. You can scan those and and get a survey, and not everybody, not every group or cult or sect or or would-be church that, that meets for some kind of worship advertises. But if you just look in that page, you can see the the spread of the many different groups, religious groups of all kind who meet just in Lancaster County. And you would see nearly everything represented there, things that are obviously non-Christian and things that would claim Christian names and labels that, in fact, are rather deviant in what they really amount to despite their labels. The truth of God, you see, doesn't come just under a certain label. And in fact, if you believe it does, you're going to be misled at some point in your life. There are people that can hold up a Bible and say, well, here's our standard. We have no other standard. In fact, they, they might say very self-righteously, we don't, 
We don't bother with any of those man-made creeds. This is our, this is our book. This is our authority. Well, then you listen to what they distill from the Bible and how they understand it. And you realize that you can have the Bible as your standard but fail to see Jesus Christ as its heart and core and fulfillment of everything it teaches, Old Testament and New. And if you do that, you will miss God, not just by inches, but by a mile. Just as these scribes and Pharisees did who studied and would have told you that they revered the Bible. One word of caution. We believers in the 21st century dare not listen to this as something with mere antique value and say, wow, I'm sure glad that Jesus wasn't addressing me and pointing his finger at me with these kind of hard words. If you have that attitude, I think you've missed it again. If we sit contented in some kind of Christian self-righteousness and say, oh my, those terrible Jerusalem Jewish leaders, those Pharisees, those scribes, well, they certainly got theirs here from Jesus. We dare not listen to this in that spirit. These warnings are here for us, lest we also would unwittingly allow to seep into our faith and our religious practice the poison of hypocrisy that had overtaken these people. Now, first of all, this morning I ask you to look briefly at verses 1 through 4. And do keep your Bible open because I'm going to refer to to portions that I didn't read, and you can scan and that will help you, I think. Verses 1 to 4 of this opening tells us that biblical religion goes wrong when preaching does not match practice. Isn't it a little odd (coughs) that Jesus began here by honoring the scribes and Pharisees? He said they sit in Moses' seat. That was both figurative and literal. They they actually have the, the law of Moses in their hands to declare to you. There also was, in many of the synagogues of that day, a literal stone seat. The archaeologists have found these outside local synagogues where the teacher would sit down in a seat to teach the law of God. And that, in people's mind, was the place of authority. You know, it, it gives rise to the, the thought today where we say there's a, a chair. Someone holds the Smith chair of theology at, at this seminary, an endowed chair. Well, it's like that. These people sit in the place of Moses with God's Word in their hands. You must listen to them if they speak, understood, what is before them, the Word of God. If they correctly proclaim the Word of God, they deserve to be heard. And by the way, we can be reminded that, you know, we have such a bad idea of Pharisees because of chapters like this. We think that a Pharisee was an evil person. They were not at all like that entirely. There were many who were godly individuals who truly sought after the truth of God. We think of someone like Nicodemus who became a follower of Christ, and we read later that there will be those among the Pharisees who even come to be disciples of Jesus. But these, this majority group here in Jerusalem that Jesus is opposing, 
What was wrong with them? If they could be commended and, and it could be said, well, they have God's word, and if they read it, if they pronounce it to you accurately, by all means listen to them, then what was the problem? Well, the problem was most of the time they were not simply proclaiming God's word and its truth. What they had done over a period of centuries was take the word of God and sort of take it apart and analyze it, move it around, play games with it until they reached all kinds of rules and secondary layers of conclusions. You know how we have uh, what we call transparencies now that we might use with an overhead projector. Teachers use these. You take this acetate sheet, you write something on it or have something printed on it, and you lay it, and your projector shows it. Well, if you have a lot of transparencies and you kind of keep laying them over the page of the Bible and you have three or four layers of transparencies, pretty soon you can't see the Word of God that's under the human transparencies. And that's what happened. These people developed their own systems and their own doctrines, and that was what they debated. That was what they taught. Well, if you think that's incredible, that you can start with the Bible and get to that point, you only have to think of a more modern example of the same thing, how the medieval churches of Europe for centuries completely lost sight of biblical salvation. The whole simple notion and understanding of justification by grace through faith, it's right there. You know, it's all over the place. Romans, Galatians, many other passages. And you would think, well, why didn't they just read their Bibles? Well, they didn't. And they relied on dogma. They relied on tradition. They relied on superstition and empty ceremony for centuries until wonder of wonders, along comes a scholar, Martin Luther and others like him, who did something amazing. They read the Bible, and they said, what we've been talking about is not what this says. Well, that was exactly what was going on with the scribes and Pharisees. They had Bibles around. They thought that what they had was biblical, but it was derivative, filtered through human screens and human grids until they no longer knew what the Bible actually said. So you see, Jesus urged people to obey the Scripture if they heard a Pharisee speak it clearly, but he said, don't trust what they do. Because he had seen ample examples that their behavior was so mired in their secondary disputes and their traditional discussions and their word games that they usually did not live according to the revelation of God. Verse 3 summarizes it well. They do not practice what they preach. One word for that, hypocrisy. That has an interesting derivation. The Greek word hypokritos comes from the description of masks. You know the classic uh, depiction of the theater with the tragedy mask and the comedy mask? The ancient Greeks loved the theater, and their actors in the earliest theatrical productions wore masks. And you were either a tragic figure or a comic figure or something else, and you would come out with this mask on. Well, everybody knew that the actor behind the mask was somebody different from the face that was being presented to them. And Jesus is saying, this is the Pharisees. They wear masks. Their whole life is a mask. They see the Bible, as many people see it today, as a rule book to be followed. I mean, they never seem to grasp, even though the Bible tells us, that human beings don't have the ability 
don't have the strength, the wherewithal, to obey the divine rules of the Bible. And if they make it into a rule book, they're going to be into a vain system of works that they can never live out. Romans 3.20, climactic statement there. Romans 3.20 says that the energy of the flesh alone can never perfectly keep the law of God. You know I love American history. I recently read a biography of a rather forgotten president, and I wanted to know more about him. John Quincy Adams. This is not the first John Adams who was president number two. His son, John Quincy Adams, he went by the the abbreviation JQA to distinguish him from his father. Maybe he was the first president to be known by his initials like FDR and JFK later on. Well, John Quincy Adams was a brilliant man, very, very intelligent, knew many languages, had schooling in Europe as well as Harvard and He was very smart. He was also very self-disciplined. And even in his time in the presidency and for most of his adult life, he attended Christian churches. In fact, during his White House years, he attended quite often as many as three church services every Sunday. You would say, wow, what a Christian. But it's so interesting to read the voluminous diaries of John Quincy Adams and what he thought about Christianity. And as he recorded and kept a rather clear uh, journal of, of his own thoughts on these things, you find out that he primarily admired Christianity as a sublime moral system. He thought it was a set of ideals that ought to improve mankind and make society a much more tolerable and livable place. And then he came to places that I was surprised to find that where his diaries recorded his impatience with pastors who spent too much time, according to him, preaching on things like the cross and the atonement and the blood of Christ. He said, I'm impatient with all that. Why don't they just tell us how to live? That's what the Bible's for. And in fact, I ended up having a real question in my mind whether JQA, John Quincy Adams, really did know Christ as Savior and Lord, despite his three-service-per-Sunday rule of worship. What he seemed to know was a book of morals. You see, moralists never look deep enough into the Scripture to see that you need to hear the message. Once you see God's law, you need to hear that you also require God's grace acting on your behalf through Jesus Christ to give you a new nature and a new life so that you can begin to fulfill the law of God once you know Jesus has perfectly fulfilled it for you at the cross. Men can't transform their own hearts even by stretching as hard as they will towards biblical ideals. So what the Pharisees really ended up with was a works religion. It began as being biblical, but it was only a facsimile of biblical faith. It was based on works, and the wheels fell off because their practical deeds could never match up to the noble principles that they thought were so great. Well, that's verses 1 to 4. Biblical religion goes wrong when its teaching does not match its practice. Now, what I want to do here for the main body today is move very rapidly through verses 5 to 36, just sketching in broad strokes the withering indictments that Jesus speaks here as he says, woe 
seven different times. I'm going to break it down into five sections rather than seven because there's, there's enough similarity that some of them sort of blend together a little bit, and I think it'll be a bit easier if we take five categories. Five red flags to watch for when biblical religion is going wrong. The first one is in verses 5 through 12. As Jesus warns about leaders using ministry, biblical ministry, to enhance their own flattery and position and prestige. He comments on the garments they wear. By the way, phylacteries were, were headbands with little boxes containing uh, passages of Scripture. And they had particular tassels on their garments. They had, they had clerical garb, in other words, that the NIV says it so well here in the one verse, everything they did is done for men to see. It's a show. They wore ostentatious things. They wanted every title they could possibly get, you know. And, and if you could have maybe three or four titles, that was great. You know, the rabbi, reverend, father, honored, right, something. Wow, you know, that must be a really respected person. It's one of the reasons why I've told many of you I don't like the term reverend. I really think here's a passage of Scripture that tells us to watch out for things like that if it's not a biblical term. They did everything they could to indulge base pride. And their ministry became a title to be worn or a pedestal for vain personal recognition, and it did not bring glory to God. It brought glory to them. The Puritan Richard Baxter said one time that greatness in Christ's church simply equates to giving great service to others. Jesus is showing us here that self-exaltation through titles and, and performance is like a circus act. And people see right through that. They can see when you're the one getting the exaltation. He taught us so many other places that humility is the path for those who want to honor Christ in their character. The maturing Christian leader is someone who talks less and less about himself or herself and more and more about Christ until my personality fades out like a star from the night sky that you don't see anymore once the sun rises in the morning. It's the sun that matters, not the night stars. Well, another red flag, we'll move right on, is found in verses 13 to 15. And this one asks the question, what kind of converts does religious practice produce? You might scratch your head and say, I didn't know the Pharisees made converts or were interested. Well, I guess they did make some. And when I think of one of their notable converts who they probably would have been most proud of, it tells me what kind of converts they made. Saul of Tarsus. A man more fanatical than most of these people who confronted Jesus directly, who was consumed by vehement hatred of the true message of God's grace and he hated Christians. What kind of converts does a ministry produce? I think of so many so-called professors of religious studies in many universities or chaplains that are put in place in universities oftentimes by liberal ministries, and, and I would ask, what kind of converts do they make? When their main emphasis is to mock students 
who come and talk to them about an evangelical conversion experience, when they haughtily speak from a vantage point of intellectual cynicism and they shred the faith of those who come from Christian homes and just tell those students they'd better wise up and get in with the rest of the world and understand that Sunday school faith is not real? Do they make anybody hungry to know God or help anyone find eternal forgiveness or peace of soul or conscience? What kind of converts does a ministry produce? Thirdly, Matthew 23, 16 to 24 is a, is a solid section here that I would blend together to say Jesus indicts the hypocrisy of any ministry that turns minor issues into major issues. He got into discussions that you might not even understand very well here in 16 and following where these folks had a whole line of discussion by, you know, if you were going to take an oath and say, so help me or I swear upon this, and, and they had this long discussion about it. It was all right to say, I swear by the, the gold ornament around the altar of God. That was okay. But it was not all right to say, I swear by the, gold alt- by the entire altar, because that was a place of consecration. And you'd say, what silly hair-splitting or the idea that they would take their garden herbs. You know, maybe you'd have a two-foot-by-two-foot two plot in which you would grow some mint or dill or these, these various herbs. You don't need a grape. You don't need acres of that. You just have a little bit. And they say, oh, we have to tithe, so we better tithe the pennies that we earn from our garden herbs and make sure you get it to the penny. And Jesus said they did that while they ignored social justice and they trampled on the poor. Do you know the word casuistry? It's a good word to learn. Casuistry is making minute distinctions that don't really matter while you completely avoid life and death issues in the same area. Well, spiritual maturity among the people of God gives us wisdom to distinguish that which is a principle for which we should be willing to die and to set it apart from some petty little thing that we can discuss over here in a corner, but if we disagree, we're still one, and it doesn't matter if we disagree. Jesus has this vivid analogy about straining at a gnat while we swallow a camel. Imagine that. Straining out a gnat that might have fallen into your glass of tea, but you've already swallowed a camel. False religions and false practice of Christianity is classically known for magnifying that which is minimal while minimizing that which is monumental. And church splits happen over this all the time. The fourth red flag heard in Matthew 23, 25 to 28 is fairly similar to that last one. It's a matter of caring more about external moral appearance than internal corruption. He said, woe to those people whose nature, the inside of them, was, was full of greed and hatred and, and all kinds of self-indulgence, but oh, they had a good act outside. They looked really good in public. And Jesus used this image of tombs that would be regularly whitewashed, cleaned up, and 
made to look very nice when everyone knew that inside was corruption and, and a dead body. Do we have examples of this around in 2008? Dead religion that looks good on the outside with spiritual death moldering behind an impressive exterior? Go to many of the impressive cathedrals and beautiful churches of America and Europe and Britain. And you can attend liturgy that is performed with artistic perfection by orators with fine voices. And you will hear classic sacred music on fantastic organs and beautiful instruments that that make your heart ache with how beautiful it is. And if you hear a sermon at all there, you will hear a sermon that says nothing about the Lord Jesus Christ or the good news of his cross and resurrection. No glory given to Christ or to God. Or another example of this, think of the way you can talk to a steady churchgoer who wouldn't miss being in his pew every Sunday at some church, who nevertheless fails miserably in his business ethics or his marriage. But if it was pointed out to him that there's a difference there, that that he looks good on the outside while he's corrupt on the inside, he'd say, oh, I don't confuse church with my private life. A man actually told me that once. A final red flag Jesus denounced in this chapter as we whiz by these things was treating God's anointed messengers with dishonor and violent rejection. The Pharisees loved to have sort of like Memorial Day celebrations and Saints' Days. And they, they, oh, my goodness, let's have a day to remember the great Isaiah. Or Zechariah the prophet who was actually killed in the temple. Wasn't that an awful thing? Let's remember him. Let's build a monument. In fact, in the first century, they were erecting many monuments around Jerusalem to the, to the great people of the Old Testament. And Jesus says, you love to honor these saints, these messengers from God, and yet it was people exactly like you who killed them. And if you don't believe that, he said, just watch, because I am going to send you my messengers, the apostles, are implied here in this passage. They're going to come, and you're going to turn them into the new martyrs for the faith right after you kill me. And his hardest word to them was to say that this generation of hypocrites brought to a climax all the violence against God's prophets of all the ages because what was worse than killing the one who was the eternal word himself sent from the Father? Well, you must wonder, ladies and gentlemen, what possible encouraging word or application you would take home from a chapter so filled with harsh condemnation and strong things from Jesus. Two things I want to emphasize as we close. First of all, don't rest content in assuming that this word is spoken only to a select historic group of some people who were long ago, the other people. I'm not like them. Be careful. Search yourself as an individual Christian and search out the ministry that you support, this congregation, other ministries that you may be part of or supportive towards. Turn these searchlight beams of Jesus on spiritual leaders, elders, pastors, that we might be warned and held to a high state of accountability as Jesus raises it here. It's important. 
But finally, don't go from this text without noticing the closing appeal of verses 37 to 39, because I believe here, geez, you, can't, you shouldn't read this and leave this out, or you just miss the totality of who Jesus is. Here he demonstrates for us the heart of God. He didn't depart from these people, and this was his last time of publicly facing off with them. He didn't just sort of slam the door and walk away as if he'd had his temper tantrum and now he didn't want to say anything more. He ends with this. An anguished plea that seems like it is wrung out of him as he says, Oh, Jerusalem, all of you, all of God's covenant people, Israel, Jerusalem, you who kill the prophets and stone those sent to you, how often I would have gathered you up and brought you to myself like a hen covering her chicks and protecting them. Notice he uses a feminine image for himself and says, I would have been your mother, your protector. I would have put you under my wings and loved you. But you wouldn't have it. This is the heart of Jesus, the Lord who must come to judge unbelief in the end of time. It's a heart broken over human willful rejection. The just God who will judge unbelief is a weeping judge. And that's an important thing to know. Jesus accused them, but he mourned for them like rebellious children casting off their own parents. And he said, your house is left desolate. What did he mean? This great temple that they said, oh, here's the house of God, and we're in charge of it. The hour for judgment on that temple was closing in, and in 70 A.D., one generation after the death of Jesus, it didn't exist anymore. Their whole religious house of cards fell down, and it doesn't exist today. Ladies and gentlemen, it's our task to faithfully tell the world a gospel that pronounces woe to those who reject God's overtures in Christ. We need to tell the world that hell is real. But we dare not preach those biblical truths with a spirit of self-righteous glee. We must tell our generation these things with the sorrow of Christ and his tears over those that are truly lost without him. The end of Matthew 23 shows this grief-stricken heart of God towards anyone today who is hiding behind a mask of hypocrisy and will not bow to Christ, God says to you in so many words, why do you choose to die? But if breath still breathes in you today, it's not too late to realize that the Son of God confronts your hypocrisy and your dead religion. He doesn't merely condemn it. He comes to it with tears of invitation. And he yearns to see everyone for whom he died turn to him in trust and in worship, acknowledging him as the only way, the only truth, and the only life. May it be so in lives even today. And our Father, we pray that we would in solemn awe see your heart of hatred for human rebellion, but not miss your wonderful, appealing love It calls to each one who will bow before Christ 
and gives us that reprieve, that path to life that is the only path. Show it to some. In Jesus' name, amen.